The comedian George Carlin, in one of his stand-up routines, expresses his astonishment at opinion polls on news networks like CNN or Fox, you know, where some question is asked and people can call in their votes. Carlin says, have you ever noticed that something like 18% vote, I don't know? It costs a dollar to make those calls, Carlin says, and people are voting, I don't know. He imagines some guy seeing the question of the day on the screen and saying, honey, get me the phone. And he shouts into it, I don't know. And then he says, sometimes you have to stand up for what you believe you're not sure about. <laughs> As the soap opera that is the Families of Genesis continues this morning, we have read a story that if I put an opinion poll up saying, what is this story about? I'm sure we would get more than 18% who would say, I don't know. For us preachers, sometimes we have to stand up here and preach on interesting stories in the Bible, and we have to stand up for what we believe we're not sure about. <laughs> and this is certainly one of those stories. The story goes that Abraham commands, or that God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only and well-loved son Isaac as a burnt offering. It's a, a confusing story to say the least, but it's also a shocking and horrifying story. I'm not sure that there's enough therapy in the world that could help mend the relationship between Isaac and Abraham if this did indeed happen. Isaac was the promised child. He is the reason for Abraham and Sarah's journey that we have been following along these last several weeks. He is the, the first star in the night sky that is Abraham and Sarah's descendants. Isaac was a miracle child, the child that Sarah thought she would never have. And so I'm sure that she watched him closely. I'm sure that she was an anxious first-time mom, a first-time mom at the miraculous age of 90. Yes, unbelievable to think. <laughs> Checking on him incessantly in the night while he slept to make sure that he was still breathing. I'm sure every little cough and sneeze made her worry. She was probably especially attentive to every bruise and skinned knee. For Abraham, too, I'm sure that he felt an immense amount of love for Isaac. It says so in the story that Isaac is his only and well-loved son. Remember that Isaac is not Abraham's only son. We have Ishmael, but we'll leave that aside for now. That abstract vision of descendants that are as numerous as the stars of heaven becomes real and tangible as Isaac enters the world. I'm sure that Abraham, too, 100 years old when Isaac is born, shared some laughter with Sarah as Isaac is placed upon her chest. I'm sure that Abraham felt especially protective over Isaac. I remember when Axel was born, he had unfortunately contracted pneumonia less than 24 hours after he was born. And so he spent about a week in the NICU receiving a round of antibiotics. It was a, a nerve-wracking and rude entry into parenthood for both Heather and I. And so after we were finally able to go home, I remember for several months after that, constantly checking on Axel while he slept to make sure that he was still breathing. And as we all know, he's completely fine now, as we often hear him here on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and so I can imagine that Abraham and Sarah felt some measure of that anxiety, concern for the well-being of their son. God, it seems, enjoys choosing fragile people to be the bearers and the avenue of God's promises. God chooses this geriatric couple to be the ones who bear Isaac. God chooses the fragile frame of children to be the ones who come into the world. And of course, we know that God will do that later on, choosing a teenage mother and a carpenter father and a child born in a stable in Bethlehem. 
But then comes that shocking and unimaginable command. In the words of the writers of Genesis, God wanted to test Abraham. And so he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Christian interpreters down through the centuries have said that this is a, a sort of foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice, that where Abraham's hand is stayed in not killing Isaac, God's hand is not stayed in Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross, or at least that's how the traditional interpretation goes. The story is still read sometimes around Easter as a way of seeing Jesus, his sacrifice, his resurrection in the Old Testament. This is still an important story in Judaism. It's read every year on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Another classical interpretation of the story is that God is testing Abraham's faith. That is a really plain reading of the text. It says it right there, that Abraham proves himself absolutely and unquestioningly faithful to God by placing Isaac bound on the altar, knife ready to strike. And God, seeing Abraham's complete faith, provides a ram in Isaac's place. And of course, the assumption is, is that God knew that this would happen all along. But as you can imagine, I'm not really satisfied with the traditional interpretations of this story. I'm really left with some unanswered, serious, and sincere questions, as I'm sure many of you are. First, what does this story say about God? What sort of God is this that would require the sacrifice of a child, any child, much less Isaac? Because remember, Isaac is more than just a child. He is the, the literal embodiment of God's promises given to Abraham and Sarah. What does it say about a God that, that God would graciously give this gift, long waited for, long expected, 25 years in the making, and then God would simply call some sort of cosmic take back on that promise? God does all of this, at least according to the traditional interpretation, in order to, to prove that Abraham is loyal sort of a, a twisted way of thinking about God, isn't it? That God would test us in such a way to see how loyal we actually are. If I was Abraham, I would be wondering, is this the sort of God that I want to continue to follow? I would have some really serious and heartfelt questions for God about the thing that he supposedly is commanding me to do. Which leads me to my second question. Why doesn't Abraham ask any follow-up questions? For one, is Abraham even sure that this is what God actually wants? What does it say about Abraham, not only as a father, not only as a pillar of faith for the world's three great monotheistic religions, but also simply as a human being, that he is willing to sacrifice his own child in order to satisfy and gain favor with God? Because it isn't a foreign concept to Abraham to debate with God, to intercede on behalf of others. Right after the story that we read last week, the story where Abraham and Sarah meet God in the skies of three visitors, God tells Abraham about God's plans to destroy the notoriously wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was that they were violently hostile towards strangers. And some of that violence was even directed at Abraham's nephew, Lot. Remember, Lot goes with Abraham when they leave Haran and they go their separate ways really early into that journey. And Lot and his family end up in Sodom and Gomorrah, and they are the, the victims of a violent mob there. So those two cities are really the antithesis of what Abraham does in the previous chapter in offering gracious hospitality to God in the disguise of these three strangers. 
But even with all of that, Abraham, when Abraham is told about God's plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he debates with God about the ethics of doing such a thing. He asks God a really insightful and thoughtful question. He says, aren't you going to be destroying the righteous along with the wicked? Aren't you going to be destroying the good, upstanding, decent people along with those bad and not so decent people? And that question leads to this back and forth between Abraham and God about whether, well, what number of righteous people would God spare Sodom and Gomorrah for? Would it be 50 people? And God says, yes, I would save the cities if there were 50 righteous, good, upstanding people within its borders. And then Abraham says, how about 45? Would you save the city if there were 45 people found within Sodom and Gomorrah? And it goes back and forth like this until they get down to 10 righteous people. And God says, if you can find 10 righteous people, 10 good, upstanding, and decent people within Sodom and Gomorrah, I will spare the cities. Of course, we know that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, telling us just how far gone the two cities actually were. All of that to say, Abraham has this history of debating with God, of questioning the ethical ramifications of God's plans. And yet, when God, according to this story, says, get up, take your son Isaac, your promised and beloved son, to Mount Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice, Abraham is as quiet as a church mouse. Not one peep from him on behalf of his son. Abraham argues with God on behalf of the nameless masses of Sodom and Gomorrah, again, a really good thing. But he says nothing on behalf of his well-loved son, Isaac. And it is this unquestioning attitude of Abraham that is often praised in this story, that Abraham has such complete faith in God, but that faith causes him to suspend what we would all call ethical he is willing to betray his own values to be completely obedient to God. And certainly, that is presented as the positive piece of the story. Remember that the Bible alone is a collection of lots of different authors who lived at different times, addressed different issues, wrote with different theological frameworks, had different understandings of God. And in the book of Genesis alone, there are lots of different authors that were then edited and compiled together. So there are all these different voices that don't necessarily always agree with each other. So whoever wrote this story down, the story of Abraham and his near sacrifice of Isaac, has the perspective on, of unwavering obedience as the most important thing, even when it suspends what is ethical. And I think that we have good reason to question such theology. What we believe about God is always mediated through our experiences, through cultural realities, faith traditions, our personal and family stories. And if we are called to be blindly obedient to God, then it stands to reason that sometimes we are blindly obedient to those projections of God that are mediated through those histories, through those different lenses. Our relationship with God is always one of discernment, of careful listening to the Spirit, of wondering, is this actually what God is calling me to do? One of the most beautiful parts of the Bible for me is that there seems to be this kind of open relationship with God that God is willing to enter into debates with people. God is willing to, to be questioned and to converse. And that is especially true within the Old Testament, that there is space in our relationship with God for questions, for doubts, for debates, for wrestling with what our faith means. And we'll talk some more about that next week, a little preview of coming attractions. 
Abraham's debate with God outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, his intercession on behalf of these so-called wicked cities, is a really good thing. He should be commended and praised for that. That's an action, I think, that is close to our own understanding of faith, of praying for those who hate us, praying for our enemies. But why doesn't Abraham question what he thinks he's hearing from God here? Why does he go on and, and sacrifice, ready to sacrifice Isaac without even asking a question? Why does he take the hand of his trusting son, knife raised, ready to do the unimaginable, until God swoops in at the last minute and says, Stop! What are you doing? The story represents an unfortunate and troubling pattern in the life of Abraham, where he seems all too willing to cause harm to his own family. And I don't mean to, be, to beat a dead horse by mentioning this again, because I know I've kind of mentioned it ad nauseum, but when Abraham and Sarah are traveling through Egypt, what's the plan? You all probably know it by now, that Abraham says, Sarah is my sister, and she makes, makes her the object of violence and kind of protects himself. But Abraham doesn't just do it there. He does it again a second time. Right after all of that pleading with God for the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham does the exact same thing with a Canaanite king named Abimelech. He tells Abimelech that Sarah is his sister, and of course bad things happen, so Abraham has to fess up again. And of course, we know what Abraham did with Hagar, sanctioning her abuse at the hands of Sarah. And then after Isaac is born, Sarah is sick of Hagar and Ishmael being part of the family. She wants them sent away, cast out. Abraham is distressed, but God says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of of Hagar and Ishmael. But then Abraham sends both of them into the wilderness without enough food and water to last them more than a day until they are rescued by God. Abraham has this pattern of harming people within his own family. There is a lot of collateral damage. That Abraham, by his own anxiety and his own desire to keep his blessing and status with God, is all too often causing harm to his family. And I believe that Abraham deeply loved them. But where is his intercession for his own family, for those who are closest to him? I warned you, didn't I, that Genesis was a soap opera filled with messy and dysfunctional families? Miguel de la Torre, in his commentary on Genesis, wonders what would have happened if Abraham questioned God? What would have happened if Abraham was willing to risk his own sense of standing and blessedness by God and interceded on Isaac's behalf? He wonders how many of us would have done what Abraham did, and I imagine and I hope that none of us would have gone as far as he did. There's a story in the other Old Testament book of Exodus of Moses, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, and then the Israelites build a golden calf. You might be thinking of Charlton Heston in the movie The Ten Commandments. And God is especially angry with the Israelites. God says to Moses, I am going to wipe them completely out, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Moses. And Moses says, God, is that really in line with your character? Is that really the kind of God that you want to be? If that's your plan, if that's your plan, then take my life but spare them. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will be talking about his own Jewish people. Remember that there were debates during that time about whether the, the Jewish people were still the people of God or, or if it was it all the Gentiles now. And, and Paul says, what I would give, I would give my own life, my own eternal separation from God in order that all of my people might be saved. There are people in the Bible who have that sort of self-sacrificial willingness, a willingness to risk oneself, to risk their standing with God in order to save those closest to them. 
But Abraham seems to lack that. I do wonder how the story might have been different if Abraham, instead of simply following the command, instead questioned God. What if he interceded for Isaac with as much urgency and sincerity as he did for those citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah? What if, like Moses and Paul after him, Abraham said, if you're going to take my son, take my life instead? But of course, there is another alternative interpretation. There is another pathway into understanding this story. And it comes to us from the ancient rabbis. We are not the only ones. We modern people are not the only ones who struggle with the ethics of this story. And the ancient rabbis say that Abraham actually fails this test. In his overzealousness to follow God, he actually misunderstands God. It is not Abraham who is horrified as he climbs Mount Moriah, making their way to the sacrificial altar, but it is God who is horrified. And when God sees what Abraham is ready to do, God finally says, stop. And then the ancient rabbis say that God created the ram that was caught in the thicket at the very dawn of creation and left it there for all time, waiting for Abraham to see it and for it to be Isaac's salvation. As one commentator says, this is another way of saying that God always and forever provides an alternative to our human tendency to destroy in ways that are big and in ways that are small. And I would add that we have a tendency to hurt and destroy and harm each other in ways that are big and in ways that are small because we believe that we are following God's command. Because what we learn at the end of this story is that God does not demand the sacrifice of this child. God did not want or need the life of Isaac to be satisfied or pleased with Abraham. Remember, Abraham already had standing with God. He had standing with God when the moment God called him from Haran. God does not call some great cosmic take back on the gift that is Isaac because God is not that way. That is not who God is. God is a God of life and love. God is a, a God of goodness and en enduring faithfulness. I think that ultimately what the story is is a repudiation of the idea that God requires this sort of thing of us. I think it's meant to shock and horrify us because it's meant to, meant to reveal to us the ways that we at times harm others in order to maintain our own sense of standing with God. There should be no collateral damage in our relationship with God. Remember that God calls Abraham to be the prism of God's blessings, that through him and his family, all of the world would be blessed. Through him, the entire world would experience God's love and grace and compassion. The faith that Abraham was called to embody was God's love and God's grace and God's compassion. And we as Abraham's children, as the ancestors in faith, are called too to be the prism of blessing. But we, by, by we I mean we as the Christian branch of Abraham's family tree, have at times struggled in ways that are big and in ways that are small as being the source of blessing, the extension of love, the spring of grace. The danger of feeling blessed or called by God is that we might end up hurting others in order to maintain our own sense of blessedness, our own sense of standing before God. And Christianity has not been immune to that. Arguments surrounding who or who is not allowed at the Lord's table, as if we had the authority to decide who is invited to the feast that Christ prepares and invites all to. Parents who, because of harmful messages they have received from their churches, disown their, their gay, lesbian, or transgender children, or forms of faith that are fixated on how sinful or how bad we are instead of how we are lovingly created by a loving God, 
obsessions with hell as if eternal reward could only be enjoyed with eternal punishment on the other side. All of these are ways that we have struggled throughout our faith's history with being a blessing. Those messages are not blessings for the world. They're not good news. They are harmful messages. They are Isaac bound upon the altar. Abraham's journey is one of, of learning how to be the channel of blessing and love. The sort of faith that he is called to embody is one that brings wholeness and justice and beauty into the world. The prism of grace and compassion concentrated in Abraham's life and in our lives is meant to then extend outwards to the rest of the world. And when I think about this community, Greenfield Presbyterian, I think that many of us are here because we have at some point in our lives experienced those harmful messages of faith. We have come here because we experience a faith that is seeking to be that channel of love and blessings into the world. That we are seeking a faith that is not the cause of harm, but one that builds up greater wholeness in the world. And that we are willing to debate and question any idea that leads us in a different direction. And this, I think, is a lesson that Abraham most needed to learn. To travel with God, to travel with a God who called him and who loved him, didn't mean that Abraham had to hurt others. It didn't mean that his status before God was constantly under threat. It is not that fragile. For Abraham, it meant channeling blessings. And maybe what is sacrificed in that moment is neither Isaac or the ram, but it is the ideas that Abraham held on to that God required that of him at all. What needed to be sacrificed were all of those ways that Abraham was not a blessing. And in that moment... I think that Abraham drew closer to God than ever before. Because Abraham is the prism of God's blessings, after all. What God needed most from him and what God needs most from all of us is to let light and love and blessing flow through all of us. It's a lesson that we as Abraham's descendants are still learning. We who dot the night sky are still learning what it means to be the light of God's love, the light of Abraham's blessing, and we are still learning what it means to, to, to embody a faith that brings wholeness and love into the world. We are the light and love of the stars that has been shining on for eons. We are the, the light and the love of the stars that will touch all of those around us. We are the light and the love of the stars that will outlast us. May our faith be not a source of harm, but a source of building up wholeness and goodness and love and justice and mercy in the world. That's the journey that Abraham was on, and that is the journey that we are all on. Thanks be to God. Amen.